are represented right here in our, uh, in our Advent wreath. And those four words are, same with me, hope, peace, joy, and love. Now, there's a word that occurs in the nativity stories in Matthew and Luke. And it's a word that occurs more often than any of those words. And yet we don't have a candle for it. And that word is fear. That'd be weird to have a fear candle on the Advent wreath, wouldn't it? That'd be kind of strange. You know, today we celebrate joy. Today we're focusing on joy. So a fear candle would just, just wouldn't seem to make any sense. But five times in Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 2, people are afraid of what is happening with the coming of Jesus. The angel has to tell Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds, do not fear. Be not afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? Why would these angels bringing the brilliance of the glory of God shining in heaven cause fear? Why would the promise of the long-awaited Messiah, He's here, He's come, why would that make anyone afraid? How can the birth of a baby be cause for fear? Shouldn't it be cause for rejoicing? Shouldn't all of that just cause them to just be overwhelmed with glorious joy? Well, that was true in the beginning. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, joy was at the heart of humanity's relationship with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They enjoyed a close, intimate relationship with God. In fact, there was nothing but hope, peace, love, and joy originally. That's the way we were created to be. But once Adam and Eve rebelled against their Creator and sin became a part of the human story, that peace was shattered. That joy gave way to dissatisfaction and love gave way to fear and hope to despair. In fact, the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned was hid from God in fear, and they hid from each other in shame. And so fear became the motivating factor in our relationship with God. Now, just like fear is sort of the motivating factor for us as citizens to obey the law, right? We don't want to get pulled over. We're afraid, so we obey the traffic law. It's the way, it's what motivates a lot of students with their teachers, okay? They, they're afraid of getting in trouble. They're afraid of getting a bad grade. They're afraid they won't make it into college. And that fear motivates them to study hard and do a good job. A soldier is motivated by fear to follow the orders of his commanding officers, And so humanity's relationship with God was motivated by fear. And it was dictated by a law. And it was mediated by a system of sacrifices. There was a veil in the temple in Jerusalem. That veil was there to keep sinful people from the presence of a holy God, lest they be destroyed. Even the priests had to undergo these rigorous purification rituals just so they could enter into the presence of God. To keep their special relationship with the Lord, Israel had to obey God's law, which they could never do. They were terrible at it. They failed miserably. And so the Lord instituted a system of sacrifices, the blood of animals to cover over the sins of the people. And all of this was necessary just so God's presence could dwell in their midst without consuming them all. Joy in the Lord had been replaced with the fear of the Lord. Not that these two are mutually exclusive. 
And we should both rejoice in the God of our salvation and at the same time have a healthy and holy respect and awe for who He is. To remember that He is God and we are not. To, to respect His majesty and His holiness and His glory. But the Old Testament story is a story of a people who are far more consumed with fear of the Lord than joy in the Lord. It wasn't a whole lot of joy. Which is why Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and the shepherds were so fearful at the appearance of these angels, at the announcement that God was coming down to dwell in the midst of His people. But He wasn't coming to dwell in their midst in a tabernacle made out of sheepskin or in a temple made out of stone. He came to dwell in them in their midst in a baby. He came to dwell in their midst in a tabernacle made of flesh and bone. Now the author of Hebrews writes about this. He contrasts this fearful relationship with God with a joyful relationship with God. Israel lived with their God in fear, but the gospel tells us that we can live with God in joy. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ came as the child of fearless joy. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And as you turn there, let me give you some background. The writer of Hebrews frames this contrast around two mountains. There's the mountain of Sinai. It's the mountain on which God gave the law to Moses, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And then there's the mountain of Zion, which is also called the City of the Living God. It's, it's Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. Zion is where God chose to establish His temple. Zion is where Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. Zion is where the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And the church was born. And while Sinai represents the law we could never keep, the law that stands against us as a dividing wall of hostility, the law that accuses us of our sin, Zion represents the grace of the gospel. God reaching down to us to have a relationship with us that's made possible through what Jesus did on the cross. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's look at specifically the, the differences outlined here between these two mountains and the two very different ways the people may relate to God. First, we see in verses 18-21, Sinai, the mountain of fear. Now, last week, we talked about the separation that sin has caused between us and God. And as Israel stood before the awesome glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai, we see that separation in such vivid detail. When the Lord told Moses not to let anyone come near the mountain, don't let anyone even touch the mountain or they will die. 
Now, why would that be? Why would their coming to this mountain upon which God's glory dwelled, why would that cause them to die? Because God's holiness and glory was too much for sinful human beings to endure. I mean, God is totally other than we are. He is holy, we are not. He is mighty, we are weak. He is self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. In Him is life. And that light was the life of men. And we, we on the other hand, are, are filled with darkness and surrounded by death. We are totally incapable of being in the presence of that kind of holiness and glory. And God's glory on that mountain was manifested in thunder and lightning and dark storm clouds and fire and in smoke. I don't know if you've ever been near a, a forest fire or wildfire or maybe you've seen them on television, but, but those things become so fierce they create their own weather system. There's thunder and lightning. There's smoke and fire tornadoes in those things. You can imagine, picture that on top of this mountain. You can understand why this would be terrifying to people, Right? But God's glory didn't intimidate them only visually. No, no, it, it was so loud. It was like this loud trumpet blast that the people were stopping up their ears. They couldn't even bear to hear it. And so they were like, no, Lord, Lord, just stop. No, don't. We can't, we can't bear to hear your voice. Don't speak to us. Don't talk directly to us. Here's Moses. Moses, you go up there. God will talk to you and you can pass the word along. I kind of think about those, those cartoons where everybody's standing in a line and everybody kind of steps back and leaves that one person there. They were like, oh, no, 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 Moses, you go on, Moses, you go talk to God. They didn't want to come near. They didn't want to listen. But even Moses, Moses, who was called a friend of God, Moses was terrified. Moses was trembling with fear. See, this is where sin has left our relationship with the God who is light and life and love. It isn't that God is some sort of big, bag, nasty, mean God up there with lightning bolts in His hand just waiting to hurl them down at the least infraction. And that's sort of the popular caricature of God that we see in our culture. But that's not the God of the Bible. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. Because we, humanity, exist in open rebellion against our Creator God. And because of that, we see Him through a distorted lens. We're at enmity with Him. He is the righteous judge who must enact His wrath against our sin. And even those in the Old Testament who knew and loved and served and worshipped God, like Moses, like Isaiah, even they feared Him. Now, you remember Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. Remember, he was in the temple. He was worshiping God one Sabbath. And he had a vision. And in that vision, he saw the Lord on his throne in that temple. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It shook the foundations. Angel choirs surrounded his throne, singing about his holiness. And you know what Isaiah's response was? He fell to his knees in fear and cried out, Woe is me! I am undone! For I am a man of unclean lips living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the Lord, the King of glory. The glory and holiness of God highlighted for Isaiah his sin, his darkness, his depravity. That is the separation every human being is born into this world experiencing from God. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that this law on Mount Sinai was temporary. It served its purpose for a time. 
God would not let this separation caused by sin to stand. God was not content to be at arm's length from His creation. He wants to be near to us. He wants to be with us. He doesn't want us to be at enmity with Him. He doesn't want fear to be our chief motivating factor. God is far more than just a righteous judge. He is also our merciful Father. And He wants love, not fear, to be our motivating factor. He wants His creation to be at peace with Him, not at war. He wants us to rejoice in His presence, not just tremble in fear. And even there at Mount Sinai, God was working out His great rescue plan. He would come near to His people to be with them. His glory would descend. And not just in fire and lightning on Sinai, not just in fire and lightning in the temples and in the tabernacle. His glory would descend in flesh and blood, not with the blasts of a trumpet, but with the cries of an infant. Things were going to be different on Zion, the mountain of joy. And that's what we see beginning in verse 22 described. Zion, the mountain of joy. You see, the separation of God from His people under the law stands in stark contrast to the approachableness of God in the Gospels. Hebrews 4.16 even commands believers to approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence. In Christ, dread and fear have vanished and God's people can now worship Him in full fellowship and joy. And just notice in these verses, we're going to look through these again real quick, notice the difference of tone. Instead of frightful sounds and images, we're encouraged to be confident, to be joyful, to be festive even. See, Mount Zion for the Jewish people was symbolic. It was symbolic of the presence of God in the temple. It was symbolic of the sacrificial system that was put in place so that the people could come near to God. It was symbolic of the Messiah King, the Son of David, who would come someday and rule over all creation from His throne. It is the holy mountain where God provided for the sacrifice in place of Isaac. And it's where God in Christ took our punishment upon Himself on Calvary's cross. So I want us to look at six characteristics of this fearless joy that is ours when we become followers of Jesus Christ. First, we can have confidence in God's presence. In verse 22, it says we can have confidence in God's presence, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. If Sinai represents the harsh realities of law, judgment, and death, Zion represents hope, grace, forgiveness, and eternal life. It's called here the city of the living God. Because we can come boldly and confidently right now, today, before the throne of God in our prayers and in our worship. We can come before the living God. He is relevant and real to our lives right here, right now. But it's also called the heavenly Jerusalem. Because someday Christ is coming back again and we will experience not just abundant life now, but eternal life then in the unfiltered presence of our God. And there we will have no fear, only joy and love and peace and worship and celebration. And that brings us to the second thing that we can have when we have fearless joy. We can have joyful worship. We can have joyful worship. Look at the rest of verse 22. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What a beautiful image. Instead of being Isaiah, trembling in fear, saying, Woe is me, as the angels sing, because of what Christ has done for us, we get to join those angels in song. 
and rejoice about the holiness and love of our God. We won't tremble in fear like Moses because we have been made clean and holy by the blood of Christ and we can approach God and His temple with pure joy. The writer of Hebrews here paints a picture of calm assurance as God and His people enjoy fellowship together. God chose in Bethlehem to to come and dwell among His creation for a season, for 33 years on the earth as one of His creation so that we could spend all of eternity with Him in that heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, in Revelation 21, it describes this. When John has a vision, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea, no longer any division. No longer any chaos, no longer any fear. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with men, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And He who is seated on the throne, Jesus Himself said, Behold, I am making everything new. Our worship here and now is nothing compared to the worship we will enjoy around the throne of God in the new Jerusalem. And both then and now... We have the privilege of worshiping God as our Father because we are all members of an eternal family of faith. And that's the third thing that we can experience as we worship the child of fearless joy is that we get a family, an eternal family of faith. Look at verse 23a. To the church of the firstborn. We come to the church of the firstborn. At the moment of salvation... Christians become members of a spiritual family, and that is the church. Now, the the phrase firstborn here can refer both to the church, but first and foremost, it refers to Jesus. Now, Paul says in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Because Christ rose first from the grave, we also will follow him from death into everlasting life. And through this, Jesus is the firstborn. He's our firstborn high and holy brother. But firstborn here also refers to the church. He says to the church of the firstborn, and then he goes on to say, whose names, plural. So he's not just talking about Jesus. How are we the firstborn? Well, because we are reborn through Christ. We become true sons and daughters of God. And our names are written in heaven. And so we are already members of that heavenly Jerusalem. Paul puts it this way, we are joint heirs with Christ in all of the heavenly riches and blessings that God has. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? That we are joint heirs with Christ? That He is our high and holy brother, but we who put our faith and trust in Jesus are every bit as much sons and daughters of God? And guess what? You don't have to wait until you die and go to heaven to enjoy the blessings and benefits of this spiritual family. Which is why earlier the author of Hebrews says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, we can 
we can and we must encourage each other to be faithful and true to our identity in Christ, to live now as citizens of this heavenly kingdom, and to proclaim the gospel and make disciples until He comes. And we do this because as members of His church, we come with fearless joy to God, the judge of all people. And we can come together to the judge of all people because we are justified before the righteous judge. That's the next element of this fearless joy, that we stand justified before the righteous judge. We can gather here together and worship as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can come in prayer before our Heavenly Father. We can go out as His ambassadors into this world because we've been justified by grace. Look at verse 23, at the end of verse 23. He goes on to say, "...whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men." The judge of all men. The Bible says that it is destined for everyone to die. And after that is the judgment. And at the end of time, God will carry out His judgment on all creation in accordance to His divine nature and His true and holy word. But the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, He declares you as righteous before the Father. And so we no longer need to fear the judgment seat of Christ. Because He's already acquitted us. He's already forgiven us. He's already commuted our sentence. We are already set free and we stand justified before God. We have been cleansed. We have been forgiven. We have been made right in the eyes of God. When He looks down at us, He doesn't see our sin, but He sees the righteous blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Just as Jesus hung on that cross, when God the Father looked at Him, He saw your sin and mine. This great exchange took place on Calvary's cross. John 3.18 says, Jesus said, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. When you put your faith in Christ, Jesus Himself said, You're not condemned. Paul said in Romans 8.1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from Sinai so that we can live in Zion, the holy Jerusalem. Believers in Christ are made righteous by what Jesus did on the cross. We become part of the church, the family of God. But the author of Hebrews next reminds us that even the church, even the church is part of a larger story. One that stretches back to the very beginning. We not only join with saints who come after Jesus, but those men and women who trusted in the Lord God of Israel that someday He would come down and make all things new. They, 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 they believed in what God was going to do through Christ Jesus. And so, another part of our joy is that we realize that we're playing a role in God's grand, epic story. That's what we read about here in verse 23. At the very end of that verse, he goes on to say, that we also come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now, scholars debate the exact reference here. Who are these righteous men made perfect? Whose spirits that we're coming to when we come to Christ? And many believe, as I do, that the author is referencing those Old Testament saints who are talked about in Hebrews chapter 11, just the chapter before this one. And it says that they are looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. They did not receive the things promised in their lifetime. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. I encourage you this afternoon, read Hebrews chapter 11. Maybe it's been a while since you've read it. Maybe you've never read it before. It will encourage you. It will inspire you as you consider the grand scope and scale of the history of God throughout the Bible and throughout human history. And to, and to be reminded as you read Hebrews 11 that you are one of those saints. That you are playing a part that is just as real and just as consequential as Abraham and Moses and Daniel and Esther and Ruth and Peter and Paul. And you're probably thinking, are you sure about that, David? I mean, me? I mean, I don't have my act together. Neither did they. I mean, I, I've got my flaws and my failings. So did they. They weren't perfect, but they were made perfect through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in their lives. But even that perfection, even that wholeness and that completeness in the image of Christ, even that isn't fully realized until we shed this old sinful flesh and we step into glory. We are on a glorious journey. You and I are playing our particular roles in God's epic adventure. And that should be a cause of joy. That should be a cause of excitement. That should give us a sense of purpose and passion in our lives to realize that my life is not just getting up and getting dressed and going to work and coming back home. That I am meant to live for so much more. For the gospel story that we read about in Scripture. For the baby that was born in that manger. And finally, when we come to the child of fearless joy, we come to a friendship with Jesus. A friendship with Jesus that is beyond description. He says, you come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The superior privileges of Christians allow us to come directly into God's presence, to fellowship with reborn believers. And we do that because we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus did what we could not do. Jesus kept the old covenant. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly. Jesus is the new Moses who stands between a holy God and guilty sinners to bring His Word to us. And guess what? That Word is Jesus. Jesus Himself is the Word of God come to us. He is the sinless Lamb of God, the once for all time atoning sacrifice that takes away our sin. And the sprinkled blood of Jesus has a better word to speak because it proclaims forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, and spiritual power for believers. Through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can have fearless joy, because we've already inherited the city of God as citizens of the kingdom here and now, because we can join in praise around the throne of God with the heavenly angel choir, because we belong to a body of believers who share that heavenly citizenship with each other, because we have no fear of God's judgment, because Christ has already paid the penalty for our sin, because we are part of an eternal story that includes the Old Testament saints and every follower of Jesus before and after us, and we have a new and intimate relationship with God, because Jesus forever took care of our sin problem. Amen? The question for us as we conclude is how should we respond to this word of fearless joy? Look with me verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. How do we respond to this? Well, first, the author here says be thankful. 
Be thankful that God has put an unchangeable possession in our grasp. And worship Him. Worship God acceptably in a manner that's pleasing to Him. See, we should always worship God with reverence for His greatness, with awe for His mighty power. And and here at the very end of this chapter, reverence and awe are linked with the fact that God is a consuming fire. Now you're probably thinking, now wait a minute, consuming fire, isn't that kind of taking us back to Mount Sinai? Isn't that kind of taking us back to the smoke and the fire and the lightning and the thunder on the mountain? Well, yes. And throughout the Bible, God's glory is often manifested as fire and light. You know why? Because God's glory is radiant. Because it's dynamic and full of energy. Because it's life-giving and illuminating. It's purifying and transforming. Just like light. Just like fire. Even in the Nativity story, we see the radiance of God's glory in the angels that lit up the night sky and the star that led the way for wise men. And just as God's consuming glory came down on Sinai and in the tabernacle and in the temple, it came down in that sleepy little village of Bethlehem on the night that Jesus Christ was born. And it came down in the tongues of fire at Pentecost in Jerusalem when the church of Jesus Christ was born. But this consuming fire, it's not meant to harm us. It's not meant to make us turn away from God in fear. We can celebrate God's grace with reverence and awe, because the grace of God, like fire, it purifies us and makes us new. It cleanses us of our sin. Like the sun, it gives us life. It empowers us to follow Christ and bear witness for Him. It burns away the dross of sin from our lives and transforms us into the very image of Christ. This morning, do you know that transforming power? Have you put your faith and trust as these children did? In Jesus Christ. No, it only takes the faith of a child. All it takes, Jesus said, is the faith the size of a mustard seed. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. You have to believe enough to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to trust my own efforts. I'm not going to trust my goodness. I'm not going to trust my knowledge and wisdom. I'm going to trust you. Would you save me? Would you cleanse me? Would you make it so that I can stand justified before God? Can you give me this fearless joy that the world promises but can never deliver? Maybe this morning you need to come and pray something like that and give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you need to come and publicly profess you've already done that, but you've never been baptized and you know you need to be obedient and follow the Lord through the waters of the baptistry. Maybe you've been worshiping with us for some time and you know that God is leading you and your family to unite with our church To say, yes, this is my spiritual family. This is where God would have me to come and to worship and to serve in joy. You come as God leads this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, You are the God of light and life. You are a holy God. You hold the universe in the palm of Your hand. You breathe and stars are born. You are holy and pure and righteous and right in every judgment you make. You are so holy other than us. And on our own, we cannot abide your great presence. On our own merits, we have no choice but to tremble in fear before your holy throne. But we thank you. And we celebrate with joy today because Christ has been born. That child has come and He died upon that cross 
so that we might be made right and righteous in Your sight, that we could stand before You justified and we could come to Your throne of grace in our time of need with all boldness and confidence. Thank You. We praise You. And Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room today that doesn't know You like that, I pray they would come this morning. Don't let anything hinder them from coming and giving their life fully to Jesus Christ that they too may know that fearless joy. It's in His name we pray. Amen.